Let's turn in our Bibles to Colossians chapter 3 as we continue our study through Colossians. If you do need a Bible, the men in the aisles be glad to give you one. If you get their attention, they can give you a copy of the scripture to follow along with us. This morning we continue in chapter 3 where we left off in Colossians. We went down as far as verse 4. We'll pick up in verse 5 and make our way this morning from verse 5 down through verse 14. And if you turn to Colossians 3 as we do, would you stand with him out of respect for God's word as I read the scripture. It says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire and covetousness which is idolatry because of these things the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them but now you yourselves are to put off all these anger wrath malice blasphemy filthy language out of your mouth do not lie to one another since you've put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and in all. Therefore is the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And Father, we humbly pause and ask that even as we sang and prayed and done other things, help us to continue now to worship by offering you our heart and our mind, our attention, Lord, that you might speak to us by your spirit from the word of God, what we would need to hear this morning. Bless your word, Lord, you know what we're asking and speak now by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. Now, I want to encourage you this morning, though I don't typically uh, take a lot of thought to titling messages, I think this passage of Scripture could be titled very fittingly, very simply, Be Who You Are. Be Who You Are. And by that, what I mean is this. Just because you may genuinely be a Christian this morning, who's put your faith in Jesus Christ as the Savior for your soul, and maybe you've embraced Him as your Lord, that does not automatically guarantee that you are now living as a follower of Christ is supposed to live. You can be, I can be a Christian and not really be living very Christ-like. It is possible for us to have our trust in Christ, to truly be saved, and yet not really be living practically as a Christ follower should. And I believe that's what God wants us to evaluate as we look at this passage of Scripture this morning. If you're a Christian today, at one point in your life, you have exercised your free will to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. You answer the call of the Holy Spirit to trust in Christ, to receive His forgiveness for your sins to receive the gift of eternal life, which is free, that you might be able to go to heaven after you die. Uh, you opened your heart to receive a relationship with Jesus. And when you exercised your faith in Jesus and salvation happened, a spiritual change happened in our lives. 
you genuinely experience spiritual change. Your spiritual identity, the Bible says, changed when you became a Christian. Your spiritual position changed when you became a Christian. It's not the same any longer. You're standing before God now is seen differently because you're no longer seen as a sinful person in the dead of your sin before a holy God, but now you're seen as righteous in Christ, as someone who has the righteousness of Jesus and is acceptable before God to be able to go into heaven. Your eternal destiny changed because before you were a Christian, the Bible tells us because of our sinful condition, truly, whether you feel like you're sinful or not, the Bible says we are all guilty before God. And if we die in our own sin, the Bible says that we will be cast into the lake of fire, into hell. That's what we genuinely deserve. But when you embrace Jesus Christ and you're forgiven of your sin, at that moment, your eternal destiny changes. And now you're not headed to hell. Now you are assured a reservation in heaven after you die. And your eternal destiny has been changed. And more, and what we want to look at this morning, your ability to live different has changed as well. That the moment that you received Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit of God came into your heart, at that moment, you received an ability to live different. To live a different life than you once lived before you were following Jesus. That's change. In the light of those wonderful things that we've all received, we are to, therefore, the Bible says, walk worthy of the calling with which we've received. We're to walk worthy of Jesus, the Bible tells us. Chapters 1 and 2 we saw discussed. All these things we've experienced and received as a result of entering into a relationship with Jesus. However, despite all we've received, it is also biblically true that we still must make an ongoing daily decision to choose to live for Christ. To choose to walk with Jesus and walk worthy of that calling. To live in a manner consistent, listen, with how a follower of Christ is supposed to live. That's what this text is about this morning. This section is about how the Christian ought to live. Not what the Christian is, not what the Christians received. This is about how the Christian ought to live. In response to all that's been given to us and the calling and commitment that we've made to Jesus Christ. Since our old life, we've died to that we saw. We've been raised together with Christ. We ought to live differently. So Paul says, verse 5, look at it with me. Therefore, in light of these things, <clears throat> excuse me, he says, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, he says, which is idolatry so since our spiritual position has changed since we've died to an old way of sinful living it is proper in response the bible says to continually now constantly be putting to death to be putting to death in practical actions any sinful activity that may begin to arise within my life and he speaks about that here in this text. And what God wants us to know is this. Jesus has supplied to us as a Christian the power to overcome sin. Jesus has provided for us what is necessary to overcome temptation, to not be in bondage to sin, and to live differently. Yet it is our personal responsibility still to cooperate with the power of God that's been supplied for us and to choose to not live sinfully. 
The power is available, but we have a personal choice every day of our life to choose. Are we now going to, that we have the freedom to, walk in the Spirit, or are we going to walk in the flesh? Before I was saved, I didn't have that option. I could only walk in the flesh because I was sinful and I had no power spiritually. But now that I'm a child of God, I have a choice. I can now walk in the Spirit and not gratify the lusts of my flesh any longer. But I must cooperate with the power of God provided to me. And it's that cooperativeness on a human level that the Bible's speaking of here in these verses. That's why we read, look at it in verse 5 in the text. He says, we must put to death our members which are of the earth. Again, when he speaks of our members which are of the earth, he's speaking of the part of our body, these earthly bodies that are sinful in their desires, sinful in their inclinations, though our spirit may be redeemed and renewed. If you haven't noticed, we still live in these earthly, physical human bodies that are prone to gravitate towards what's sinful. That's why you find as a Christian, in a way, even before you weren't saved, that's why you find now there's this wrestling going on within. Before I was saved, there was nothing to wrestle about. I just sinned. I just did it. I just enjoyed it and fulfilled it. Whatever I felt like doing, I just indulged my sinful desires and thoughts and attitudes and actions. But then you get saved. And now this conflict arises within because this new nature, this spiritual nature develops within. And now you find this wrestling where your new spiritual nature is wrestling against the members of your sinful earthly body of flesh that you still are kind of like stuck living in. Paul speaks of it this way. Listen to him in Romans 7, verse 21 to 23. Paul writes this 30 years into his salvation. He says this, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to my inward man, but I see another law in my members, my body, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. See, The problem is these sinful bodies, the members, the parts of this body crave and desire still to do what's sinful in action, in speech, in thought. So we must choose to put such longings, God says, to death. We must choose to die to those old things, to refuse those sinful demands and overcome them by the power of Christ. We must make the choice to yield to the power of Christ that's now available to us to say, I don't have to live like that anymore. I may still desire to do what's wrong at times, but I don't have to indulge it now because the power of Christ is able to help me to put that to death if I cooperate with what God wants and the power that's available to me. But I must cooperate with God. Paul says in the 8th chapter of Romans regarding this cooperation, therefore, brethren, listen to what he says, we are not debtors to the flesh. He's saying, We don't have any obligation to fulfill the flesh anymore. We're not obligated to live in the sinful ways anymore, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to flesh, you'll die. But listen, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Again, it's by the Holy Spirit helping me that I can put to death the sinful inclinations that arise within me to do what's wrong. And then he directly lists, as we can see in verse 5, some practical areas of sinful living. Look what he says with me. He says, put to death, or you could say put an end to, first of all, put an end to fornication. And that word fornication is a very general term that just refers to any form of sexual sin. 
or sexual immorality in conduct. It can refer to premarital sexual relations between two people who are not yet married. It can refer to sex outside of the boundary in marriage. It can refer to even just sexual activity, things that we know before God are not pleasing that are things that are reserved for the marriage bed between a husband and a wife who are in that covenant relationship where God has designed for sexual expression to take place. Anything outside of that is fornication. It it can refer to adultery. Again, having sexual activity with someone who's not your spouse, someone who you're not married to or someone who is married to another. Fornication can be a term used as well to refer to homosexual conduct and practice. Someone of the same sex is something, again, is fornication. It's forbidden by God in his word. It's outside of God's design. It's interesting, the Greek term that's used there is pornea. Sound familiar? It's where we get our English word pornography. Just in case you were wondering if that's acceptable. God would say, no, it's not. The term itself indicates very clearly God's disapproval of looking at pornographic things and indulging ourselves in some way. Again, God's perspective is sexual sin in any form outside of the boundary and design of a marriage relationship. It's, it's wrong. It's fornication. And if these things are transpiring in your life, even as a Christian, God's instruction is that you need to put an end to it. He doesn't say just cut back. He says, cut it out. Cut it out altogether. It does not belong in your life. It is inappropriate. It is sinful and wrong. And I would encourage you, write down 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, because there the Bible doesn't just say we should abstain from sexual sin. It actually tells us sexual sin is actually a self-harming sin. There's something about it that's very self-destructive when we begin to disobey God in that particular way. He also says in verse 5 that we're to put to death unholy or unhealthy longings we may find happening within. He says put to death uncleanness and passions and evil desires as well. Uncleanness is a reference to desires to indulge what's morally inappropriate. Just impure activity, things we may be pondering that are unclean or participating in or viewing. He says, put to death as well, passions. And that word speaks of strong cravings or yearnings for what's wrong. Yearning and longing for something that's just inappropriate. Desiring for something in an unrestrained way that exceeds natural or proper limits. Those things that are just, in a sense, the unrestrained longings to want to go beyond what are appropriate limits. He says, these things are to be put to death. Again, let me just say this morning, unregulated passions... Have they not? Unregulated passions in people have destroyed many lives. When someone does not find the the capacity to regulate their passion and they just let it go unrestrained, that has led many people into lives of slavery and bondage and self-destruction. So the Bible says we need to put to death and put an end to these unrestrained passions that arise within us. Again, he mentions their evil desires, that is, interests or desires to just do what's evil, to do what's wrong in any way, to behave selfishly. One translation renders this, put to death impurity, lust, and shameful desires. He also mentions verse 5 that we're to put to death as well. One other thing, he says covetousness. And covetousness is that term that speaks of a greedy desire to have something that we just don't have right now. 
It's that unhealthy longing to have to have more, whether it's wealth or money or, or just more possessions or, or, or you know, even could be position, just coveting a position or some status in life. And it's just that unhealthy yearning rather than being content because maybe you want to keep some status or you just want fulfillment. Sometimes covetousness is as well just jealously desiring what another person has. It could be the single person coveting the married position of someone else. And they're jealous because they're not married yet. Or it could be, again, coveting somebody else's position. Why do they get to have that position? How come they get to do that? I, I should be allowed to do that. Why do they not ask me to do that? And again, covetousness can manifest itself in many different ways and is unhealthy and really something that is an improper attitude in our hearts, God says, that we're to put to death when we find it arising within us. Notice as he refers to these wrong practices, fornication, uncleanness, passion, covetousness, evil desires. He then says at the end of the verse, which is idolatry. Interesting, which is idolatry. Idolatry is the worship and devotion of anything or anyone other than God. That's simply what idolatry is. When we give more allegiance and devotion to anything or anyone before God himself, the Bible says that's idolatry. It's idolatry. And let me just say, all of these sinful things described even right there in verse 5 and in these verses ahead, all of these things can become a master passion in someone's life. They can become idolatry. We live in a culture that idolizes sex. We live in a culture that idolizes covetousness. We just say he's very motivated. No, maybe he's very covetous. And he's putting money before his family. And that's why he's ruining his family. And, and we idolize a lot of these things. And we you know, brush them off as other things. And the reality is any of these kind of things, we can begin to be more devoted to them than we are devoted to God. And when that starts to happen, he says, look, if this is going on, there's an idol that needs to be dethroned in our life. Because when we give more allegiance and maybe we want to satisfy some sinful longing more than we care about honoring God, he says, there's idolatry going on in our heart. And we need to dethrone that. We need to be willing to put to death that idolatrous desire or practice in our sinful nature. Paul then reminds us, verse 6, he says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which he says, you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. So he offers here some reasoning, as if we would need it, right? He offers some reasoning why, as Christians, we should put to death or refrain from some of these sinful attitudes or activities. And he mentions here, first of all, because in verse 6 he says, these, first of all, are the very things that are one of the major contributors to why the wrath of God's coming on the world. He says in verse 6, he says, it's because of these very things just mentioned that the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. So to live in these ways is in direct defiance to God. It's in direct defiance to his will and what the word of God says. The unsaved world, the sons of disobedience. These are the ones who are doing these things that are accumulating ultimately the righteous judgment of God that's going to come upon this Christ-rejecting world. And what Paul's reasoning here is basically this. If these things are what are the major contributor to the wrath of God coming on the earth, then he's saying, why in the world... 
would God's children be participating in these things? If we know these are the very things that's causing God to ultimately have to judge the world and bring his wrath upon it, then he's saying, then how inconsistent if I'm a follower of Christ that I would participate in those things? That I would want to further poke God in the eye a little bit more and be defiant to God because I want to live in some selfish way to indulge my sinful nature and further provoke God? I mean, quite frankly, it's, it's disgraceful when we begin to do these things. It's something that becomes rather rude to the Lord. You know, the thought came to my mind. It almost would be like in some ways, and this is a poor illustration. Let's say you're a parent and your uh, child dies of a heroin overdose. And then the next day, someone comes to you and tries to sell you heroin. And see, this is kind of the idea here. We know these are the things that are bringing the wrath of God on the earth. And then as Christians, somehow we choose to find justification to participate in these very things it's it's offensive to the lord and something that in some ways needs to be rid from our lives when we find it happening as quickly as possible he also says in verse 7 another reasoning is he says this is a part of this is a part of your past life not your present life as a christian look what he says verse 7 he says this is the way in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them He's saying the reason we shouldn't be living like this any longer because that's how we once lived when we weren't following Jesus Christ. That's a part of our past life, he says. We've died to that. And as a Christian, I should, you should always be able to look at your life and see a marked difference in who you are now, how you live now from the way that you used to live before you claimed to be a follower of Jesus Christ. There should always very clearly be able to see a contrast in how we now live in comparison to how we once lived and walked before we were following Christ. And if we do not see any difference, if there's very little change in our life or conduct, let me just say that's not healthy. Genuine repentance is in order. Spiritual growth is in order. Our old ways of life should be coming to an end. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 4.3. He says, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties. Imagine, that's in the Bible, huh? Drinking parties. And abominable idolatries. Do you see what he says? I love the way Peter writes it. We have spent enough. Peter's saying, that's enough of that. You're a Christian now, he says. It's enough of that. We did that before. We live differently. We don't live like the rest of the world. We once lived in sinful ways like the rest of the world. Look as he goes on, verse 8, he says, but now. Contrast, but now. You yourselves are to put off all these anger, Wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. So again, giving further instruction to how believers are to live out their daily lives. Giving more explanation, choosing to do things that live in a consistent manner with how a child of God should live. And he now begins to use this imagery, you notice here, of a person getting dressed each day and putting off the old clothing and putting on new, clean clothing, making a change, 
as you begin each and every day. He says there, you yourselves, look at it, are to put off all these things. It's, it's a, a, a illustration. It's creating an image here. The idea is recognizing your garments are dirty and defiled. You've worked in the field all day, and so now your garments are dirty and defiled, and you realize, hey, these are dirty, defiled garments. I need to change them. I need to take these things off. They're, they shouldn't remain on me because they're filthy. Some translations render this phrase here, rid yourself of these things. So as a believer... We are to do that spiritually, to put off what's not fitting before God. And he lists some of those things we're to put off or rid ourselves from. The first thing he mentions there is anger. And that term there is a reference to kind of that hot, smoldering fire of animosity that burns down within. Where something transpires, you know, you know, an offense or a misunderstanding or whatever, or a situation arises, and then inner frustration develops within over something or towards someone and we're highly irritated and we're annoyed and and we kind of have that burning resentment down within us and then others of us we'd maybe fit better with the second he says wrath that refers to the volcanic eruption where instead of it smoldering within just explosive volcanic eruptions of unrestrained feelings unrestrained feelings of anger you know where we just fly off the handle in an uncontrolled rage and we just give somebody a piece of our mind which i don't always suggest you should probably keep as much of your mind as you got left for some of us and we just you know outburst of wrath uncontrolled rage in our words or our actions and the end result is like somebody just threw a grenade at the feet of somebody and just you know out of control damage and devastation from wrath the word malice interesting is a word that speaks of having ill will in your heart where you want to see someone else hurt or suffer that's what malice is many of us may not recognize that word it's where you have such a a, sort of a hateful disposition towards somebody that you're actually wishing something bad would happen to them you kind of just you wouldn't say it maybe but inwardly you're just kind of cherishing that you hope something really wrong goes on in their life that something really bad happens to them and when you see yourself longing or desiring for something bad to happen to someone else you have malice in your heart and that's not healthy it's wrong and he says here whenever the presence of these things anger wrath malice are within us like a defiled garment we need to put these things off we need to rid ourselves of these things he then mentions as well in the same list here some sinful errors in our speech in communication he mentions in verse 8 as well things that are wrong like blasphemy and blasphemy is just a term for hurtful or destructive speech whether it be directed toward god or even towards other people blasphemy is just slandering a person in order to injure their character and that can happen towards god people blaspheme god and people can blaspheme one another where they slander someone with their words just to injure their name or their credibility He also mentions, and again, keep in mind, interesting talking to Christians, but he says filthy language out of your mouth. That is just impure, inappropriate speech and talk, profanity, vulgar language. It's something very unbecoming to hear a Christian using profanity and cuss words. I mean, just very inconsistent. 
If these things are going on, they're things that should be rid from our lives. He also mentions going on in verse 9, more sins of the speech. Verse 9, look what he says, and do not lie to one another. Are you kidding me, Paul? You're writing to Christians. But God knows what's real among us and that we have weaknesses and we all struggle and we need to hear these. And so he says, don't lie to one another. Sometimes as, as people, we, we flat out intentionally are dishonest and other times... Right? We're a little more subtle in our efforts of deception. But remember, not speaking the truth in any capacity is lying. And lying can manifest itself in all kinds of different ways. You know, hiding and covering up what we you know, shouldn't to give a false impression. That's lying. Somebody asks a question and we answer it in a completely dishonest manner. That's lying. Making up a story or changing the facts of what's kind of really true and embellishing a little bit for our own interest. That's lying. Holding back information that we should share and volunteer. Oh, I'm, I'm not lying. I'm just not telling everything. No, that's lying. That's lying. Why? I planned on telling them later. No, no you planned on lying now is why you're not planning on telling them until later. That's lying. We're to live in the light, to speak the truth in love, but to speak the truth and to convey what's true and what's honest. There is never a good reason or beneficial purpose to lie. It's wrong. And listen, above all other things, lying violates and ruins trust and it harms relationships. It's one of the most destructive things to relationships. And remember, Jesus said out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Which means if I'm struggling or you're struggling with these kind of things, we find ourselves filthy language coming out of our mouth. Oh, I'm sorry. I just, no, it's actually a heart issue. You find yourself lying. Oh, I just, no, it's actually a heart issue. And so Jesus says out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we need to come before God and say, Lord, forgive me. Change my heart. I repent, Lord. I don't want these things to be the way that I'm speaking or how I'm behaving or outbursts of wrath change my heart. So he says, don't allow yourselves to live according to these old sinful ways. He then goes on in verse 9 saying, since, because, here's a reason again, you've put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who's renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there's neither Greek nor Jew, he says, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. So the Bible is reminding us here directly that, again, our identity has changed. That as the result of coming to Jesus Christ, we've had an identity crisis in the greatest way. Our identity has been transformed. We are not who we are. The Bible says when we're in Christ, we're a new creation old things pass away all things become new you're not the same person so God's saying live like that's true now live like you're not the same person do you see what he says there in the text he says since you've put off the old man with his sinful deeds and you've put on the new man who's Christ-like even as a person typically right we, we get up in the morning or you know whatever we, we change our clothes every day most of us we appreciate if we have a change of clothes every day we should and, and in the same way that we do that we're supposed to do that spiritually it's an analogy it's a picture in the same way every day when i wake up in the morning i need to make a conscious decision i am not who i once was i know what i was before i was following christ and i'm not proud of that 
And I don't want to be that anymore. And listen, I don't have to be that anymore. It saddens me to hear at times people talk and even say things like, well, I'm always going to be or I'm always going to be. No, you're not. And this is a lot, again, of the secular mindset towards, well, you you were this, so you're kind of just always going to be that and always know. No, no, you were changed. I understand keeping your guard up, but you're not what you were. You're a Christian now. You're a follower of Christ. You've been changed and transformed. Jesus said, "If, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. You don't have to be who you were anymore. You've received a brand new identity, a brand new start, and the spiritual reality is that new identity is who we ought to be. That old person who you were is not who you are any longer. So listen, Christian, don't allow yourself to live that way. Don't allow yourself to believe that's what you always will be or gravitate back or remain in that condition. I said at the beginning, be who you are. Be who you are now, not what you were. Be who you are now, except by faith you're a changed person and every day put on that new person, live like Christ as you're called to follow him. And one of the best ways to do that, he says in these verses here, in verse 10, is to allow yourself to be renewed, look what he says, in knowledge according to the image of Jesus. This is how we experience this on a daily basis. Every day, spend some time alone with Jesus talking with him, letting him speak to you. And as you're in the Lord's presence, he will renew your mind. Because every day the world's trying to program your mind or my mind was so wrongly programmed, it's taken a long time for it to keep getting renewed and reprogrammed. And every day as you spend some time alone with the Lord, he will renew your knowledge of what's right and wrong and help you think with the knowledge of God's ways. And as that process is happening, it will also be the way whereby the Lord is changing you to become more Christ-like, to bring you into the image, he says here, of Jesus and the new man. You'll daily be conformed to the image of Jesus. Listen to 2 Corinthians 3.18 regarding this great verse. You should know this verse because it's critical to your sanctification or changing to be like Christ. He says, we all with unveiled face... Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Do you see what the Bible says there? The Bible says there that we experience change not by reforming ourselves, not by saying, okay, well, what are the seven steps or the three habits or the five power principles or what do I need to do or what program? No, the Bible says you spend time in the presence of Jesus, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, just loving the Lord, living for the Lord, following the Lord, spending time with the Lord. And as you do that, the Bible says we are indirectly then being transformed by the Spirit of the Lord. It's Him changing us. That is, we're in his presence. The byproduct of that is we're being transformed into the same image of Jesus. What a wonderful thing. We're being transformed, but it's his work transforming us. And the way we experience this is by being in his presence, embracing him, being one with him, that this change begins to happen in our lives and we begin to walk in that new identity. Speaking of our identity in verse 11, he says there, regarding being in Christ, there's neither Greek nor Jew. That speaks of the nationality or cultural or ethnic background. He says there's neither circumcised nor uncircumcised. Those were religious backgrounds. 
Barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. That was social or economic status in the culture. And he says, none of these identities matter most. He says, the identity that matters above all else than those earthly identities is, he says, Christ is now all. And he's in all. And I love this because the Bible here, again, wanting to remind us of our identity, says, look, above every other worldly identity you may have in your life, and that's fine, but God says above every other worldly identity, your heavenly identity, your spiritual identity is your true identity. You're a Christ follower. You're a Christian. You know, we live in a world that loves to hyphenate and separate everything. I'm this kind of an American. I'm that kind of, and, and we have all these identities that we want to develop and cling to and hold on to. And especially for the child of God and among the body of Christ in the church, the Bible says, no, listen, you have an identity. You're children of God. You're Christ followers. And listen, if there is ever a place where there should be tremendous unity amongst diversity, it should be in this environment, in the church where whether we're young or old or despite the color of our skin or our ethnic background or our racial situation or our socioeconomic status or whatever it may be, smart or dumb, rich or poor, that, that we would say, but, but Christ, that's the level ground. That's our unifying factor and that is the identity that we care about more than anything. We are a group of people who all love Jesus and with the foot of the cross, we're all equal and level and we're just trying to serve Christ together and be followers of the Lord and pleasing Him. Now, though those things are true, the unity is real, but yet in our experience of living out life, we're always being challenged and that unity is always a lot of times being disrupted. Even just in our regular interactions, just like a family, if yours is anything like mine, we still have misunderstandings. We have issues, we frustrate one another and step on each other's toes because we're all still mistake prone. We all are weak and we say things maybe we shouldn't or you know, fail to you know, kind of understand what's happened here and there. And, and so because of that, as we live together and dwell together, we're rubbing each other at times the wrong way. And just like a human family, it happens among the spiritual family. And as a result, we have to exercise Christ-like virtues to be able to dwell together in unity the way that God wants us to. And that's what Paul is speaking about in these last few verses here. He says in verse 12, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, notice, put on tender mercies and kindness and humility and meekness and long-suffering. So he's giving to us now virtues that will help us to maintain unity in our interactions with one another. But before he does that, at the beginning of verse 12, before asking us to be intentional about endeavoring to be Christ-like among one another, he first reminds us in verse 12 of some of the special relationship that we have with God. Look at it there. He says, first of all, we've been chosen by God. He calls us the elect of God. That word elect means picked or chosen or selected by someone. It speaks of how the Bible teaches that God has purposely chosen you as a Christian to become a child of God. Ephesians 1 and 1 Peter 1 speak of this. Despite what we were and who you are, you have been privileged to be chosen to be a child of the living God. To be a brother spiritually with Jesus Christ. God elected you. God adopted you into his family that you might experience all the eternal benefits of that. 
So we've been called or, or chosen by God and then we've been in that calling set apart. Notice as well. He says we are holy. The word just means to be set apart for a special purpose. God chose you to be his child and he chose you out of this world system of sin that you might live for him instead. That you could be a representative of him and live set apart and different from the rest of the world. And if that weren't enough, he also says we're beloved, which speaks of how we're cared for by God. Chosen and called to be separate and cared for by God. We're his beloved. We've experienced the love of God in our lives. And because we've experienced his love in our lives, ladies and gentlemen, that's why we are the best equipped people to be loving, to walk in love, to exercise love. And in light of these realities, he says, put on, he's going to say here, these are things we should put on our life, put off, rid ourselves of what's wrong. But there are things we should daily choose to put on. That is just like you put on clean clothes every day, perhaps, I hope. He says in the same way, perhaps, I hope, every day as a Christian, you're getting up and saying, okay, I'm not that old person anymore. So I'm going to put on my right identity today as I go live in this world. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm someone who represents the Lord. I'm a child of God. So we put on certain virtues that are Christ-like. We seek to aspire towards intentionally representing the one that we love and serve. And he gives a list of some things we should pursue after as Christians. He says, first of all, that we're to put on, verse 12, tender mercies. Tender mercies speaks of being compassionate and sympathetic, to be understanding in our attitude and our actions towards other people, to be someone who who just has a tender, gentle spirit. We're sensitive to other people's weaknesses because we know we have weaknesses as well and so we can be tender and instead of being judgmental and condemning, we extend grace and be tender and merciful to the weaknesses of others at times because we know we have our own share of weaknesses. He says also put on kindness. Put on kindness to be caring and thoughtful, loving in our treatment towards others, gracious in your disposition. Somebody who's just courteous in how you treat people and kind in how you relate to them, unlike, again, a very harsh, cruel world that we live in out there. There's kindness coming out of our lives. That every day we would seek to put on the humility of Christ. And the word humility speaks of just holding a proper view of oneself. That's what humility is. You don't overthink of yourself. You don't underthink of yourself. That's false humility. You... Reality is, you just really don't think about yourself. You don't have an inflated view of self-importance. You're just who you are. You're comfortable in who you are in Christ. You don't have an attitude that's haughty or a temperament that's arrogant. You just have a humble spirit in the way that you live. You're just willing to be a servant among people to help in humble ways without expectations. He mentions as well every day that we should also put on, verse the fourth thing, meekness. And meekness refers to just having strength and authority in your life, but having it under control. It speaks of being able to show restraint, to be able to restrain and hold back and deny yourself at times for what is needed for the welfare of other people. That's what meekness is. It doesn't mean you're weak. Meek means you can have incredible strength and authority, but you're able to yield to other people. You can defer to someone else. You don't have to be forceful and take control and have your way and be aggressive. Instead, you can be the opposite. You can just yield to other people. 
You don't have to force your way. Jesus was meek. He was never forceful or aggressive, and he had great authority. But Jesus was submissive and helpful and supportive. He also mentions to put on long-suffering, which is the ability to just, the word speaks of it, suffer long, long-suffering. Under mistreatment, that you keep suffering long and without retaliating, you have patience under suffering. He then goes on, verse 13, to get real direct by telling us the need for also, look at it, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. He says, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. I love the Bible so honest here. Bearing with one another. To me, that, that's phenomenal, direct, clear, candid, because there are times that we are going to rub one another the wrong way. If you haven't noticed, come work one of our events like we did yesterday. I guarantee there are a few times people were bearing with one another if they were trying to do what was Christ-like. But we're called to do that. Listen, sometimes it may just be the fact we're not all wired the same way. I mean, we have differences of perspective and opinions and who we are, our personalities aren't always all going to mesh well. Just because you know, you're family in Christ and you, you have the same father, it doesn't mean necessarily you're all going to be best friends and everybody's going to always click and get along. And I mean, that's just immaturity. That's just naive. But the Bible says you're family. And families love one another. And they're devoted to one another. And they accept one another despite what the situation is. And, you know, again, some people, quite we may at times just tend to bother one another. But he says, listen, in the love of God, we learn to bear with one another, to be gracious in our acceptance. We're to learn how to bear with each other in love. And we're commanded to extend, in verse 13, look at it there, constant forgiveness. Because that's needed to bear with one another. Constant forgiveness. He says, if anyone has a complaint against another, that never happens in the church, right? He says, oh, they did this, or they're that way, or they said this. And he says, look, see, I have a complaint. Constantly, notice it's in the present tense, forgiving. He says, if you have a complaint, he says, we're to be forgiving one another. And if you have a complaint, here's, here just cuts it all out from under us. Even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. Not a suggestion, not an option, not if you feel like it, not if you're not that badly hurt. One of the major things that should always set us apart from the world, listen, is not the absence of conflict. That is naive. Families fight, families have issues. We're still human beings. It's not the absence of misunderstanding or hurts or fights. It's in the church. It's among Christians. We understand biblical conflict resolution. That we understand how to humble ourselves, how to apologize, how to communicate, how to talk things through, how to not ignore issues, how to be prayerful and persistent to say, yes, we had an issue, but you didn't murder my mom. I don't have to hate you the rest of your life. Amen. That's the thing that separates us. We have the love of God, the grace of God, the power of God. So he says there, even as Christ forgave you. How did Christ forgive you? I know he forgave me completely, completely, not partially. 
He doesn't treat me like it still happened. He treats me like it never happened. He just, here's the, here, this, is, this is radically spiritual, ready? He lets it go. Just let it go. Move on. Let it go. And just extend forgiveness. Extend love again. I'm not saying you have to become best buddies with somebody again. But let it go. Act like it never happened. Just let it go. He says, even as Christ forgave you, notice that's not an option. You must also do. It's a command. We're obligated. We are commanded. We must also forgive even as we've received that forgiveness from Christ. In verse 14, he tells us how to do that. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. More than anything else, the best thing we can do to fulfill what's being described in this chapter, he says, let me give you a word to sum it up, Paul says, above all these things, first and foremost, just put on love. Put on love. Because love is the binding, bonding factor to all these Christ-like virtues. Because if you and I are filled with love, all these other commands and instructions, they all hinge upon that. They're all connected to that. One translation renders this, over all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. See, the only way that I can do, you can do what's described in verse 12 and 13 to be tender, merciful, kind, humility, meekness, bear with one another, forgive. The only way you can do that is not in your human strength. It's by the power of the love of God just flowing into your life and through your life. And as we spend time with Jesus, the divine love of God's being poured into our heart and then we can extend that love towards other people around us. Shall we pray together?